Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. So good to be with you today. And today's topic is part two of disrupting false peace as God's path to true peacemaking. Now, last week, I introduced this explosive teaching from Jesus uh, as we looked at the nature of false peacemaking in part one. And that is that false peacemaking pretends everything is fine when it is not and avoids conflict, sweeping things under the rug, hoping they disappear, mostly out of fear of rocking the boat. It's what we call Christian nice. It's how I lived the first 17 years of my Christian life, even as a pastor. The problem is you can't build Jesus' kingdom on pretending or lies. And so we looked at the life and ministry of Jesus who modeled for us true peacemaking as he had to pass through conflict with his family, the religious leaders of his day, and with the crowds. So this week in part two, we're going to look closely again at the person ministry of Jesus on what are the qualities that we need to mature into if we're going to grow into true peacemakers. As he says, don't suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And again, he's integrated that within a wider teaching of blessed are the peacemakers. And we see him cleansing the temple and place, a place, the place where people go to get access to God, but yet they find there are tables and barriers keeping them from God. And so Jesus exercising great wisdom out of love, but with a real sense of a warrior heart and spirit, all at the same time integrated, uh, he functions as a peacemaker as he overthrows tables. And we want to be a peacemaker like him in the same heart and spirit. So this week, we're going to explore that. Now, this week's free resource actually is a skill that we've taught for decades to help people mature into true peacemakers. Uh, and it comes out of the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, uh, and it's called the Community Temperature Reading. It's a simple five-part framework to help you begin to discover and to exercise your God-given voice and be able to actually enter into uh, at least on this base level, difficult conversations. So check it out at emotionallyhealthy.org slash community. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash community. You'll find some uh, memorable sentence starters, uh, uh, some gr- some tools to express yourself clearly what you're thinking and feeling, and, it's, and create safety, not just for yourself, but for others around you. Now, for now, let me invite you to listen in on the message of part two, disrupting false peace as God's path to true peacemaking. Enjoy. Thank you. So last week, again, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And again, a theme very simply was as we, re, as we were a people who've received peace from God, and now we give it out to other people. Families, church, relationships, neighborhoods are all be transformed because we've been transformed by Jesus. And uh, we talked about how true peacemakers uh, are false peacemakers. There we go. False peacemakers, we spent a lot of time on this last week, avoid conflict and appease. And uh, that you cannot build the kingdom of God on lies. That real peace can only come through the truth. And it's really a misunderstanding of this verse to think that peacemakers are, are doormats, are people who say nothing, who are afraid, who say it doesn't matter to me, get off my back, who don't have enough spine or backbone to say what is true. And rather, what Jesus is saying, these are my people out of their walk with me. Do not abdicate their role in society as salt and light. We don't shrink back. We don't avoid. We don't appease. Rather, we engage with initiative uh, and bring true peace, the true kingdom of God. And like a doctor, we have a couple of doctors here, you'll bring chemotherapy, which is poison to help heal a person, 
or radiation, which is, of course, deadly, or if you're a surgeon, you cut into a person to heal them. In the same way, true peacemakers understand you have to disrupt and cut into lies and falsehood so that true peace can come and that the way of peace, or at least Jesus' peace, will never come from pretending that what is wrong is right. And that when we are in environments where we pretend that what's wrong is right and say nothing, we are not engaging in what Jesus says is true kingdom peacemaking. So he's redefining it for us out of his life, his ministry, and his teaching. And so we, we, we talked about this verse last week, Matthew 10, 34 to 38, where Christ says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that the sword itself well, a decision runs right down the middle of families. And he lays it out. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And, and we talked about how the critical decision for every disciple, at least in relationship to our families, which we all have a dream for wonderful families, is that we must prefer Jesus over and against even our own children or our families. And uh, he demands that absolute loyalty and that we're even willing to bring true peace into our families, which, as you know, as a good Italian-American, that grinds against everything about how I was made and everything that goes back thousands of years in my culture. And I, like many of you, I'd rather be crucified to a cross or put in jail than have to go against my family. And, uh, but Jesus says, understand, true peacemaking does that so the family can experience true peace. But a family built on lies and pretenses will never experience the life of the kingdom of God. So, what I wanted to go into this week was now how do we actually do this true peacemaking that disrupts false peace? And uh, so I want to basically break it down in three areas. I, as I wrestle with this and say, well, how, how do we do this true peacemaking? And really, I'm going to give you three images of a lover where wise men and women and we're also warriors. It's those three pictures together that really, I think, embody Jesus doing it. And so I'm a picture guy, and it helps me. So you may want to write back, and, you know, write in the back of your Bible or in some paper and go home and bring it before God as I expound on each of these. As you wrestle with, how do I be a true peacemaker in this situation and that situation? Because these situations are coming to us literally every single day. And we're making choices to engage as Christ as true peacemakers or to follow the way of the world and be false peacemakers by avoiding, appeasing, and then even slapping God on it like it's okay, and justifying the fact that we don't have the courage uh, to do it. So uh, let's begin with this first picture of a lover, and then we'll get to the other two uh, following that. But uh, let, let me begin by a little story of how easy it is to miss it. And, and this is the reason I, I had to have a part two to this message, because many believers and Christians throughout history have done peacemaking, okay, they weren't avoiders or appeasers, but the problem was they took that, yes, true peacemakers disrupt false peace, and they used God now to do damage to other people. And a classic story is one of uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, some of you may know the name. He was a, the great Cistercian abbot in the 1100s out of France, and he was really of his day uh, the Billy Graham of his day. And if you read any of his writings, they're, they're quite brilliant, beautiful. Uh, the man had a deep spirituality. But uh, this was the time of the Crusades. And the Pope at the time, Pope Eugene III, 
got in cahoots with the uh, king of France and decided that they needed to bring a crusade together and take back the Holy Land, Jerusalem, from the Muslims. And so the Pope ordered uh, Bernard to mobilize France and mobilize all of Europe against the East, which he did over actually a uh, two-year period. He traveled uh, tirelessly throughout Europe and mobilizing people and basically arguing that this was a crusade opportunity in the that he quote, he says, the Christian glorifies in the death of a pagan because Christ himself is glorified, he wrote and, and preached. And he said, by, you're renouncing sin and turning to God by joining this crusade. And so children and, and, and citizens as well as soldiers and others uh, joined. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a massive crusade and a massive disaster in which tens of thousands of people died on both sides. And we still are bearing to this day the consequences of those crusades. But uh, it was someone who he missed it. And so don't ever forget, as we talk about peacemaking, that good, solid, spiritual Christians can get it wrong. And don't ever think you can't get it wrong in this thing. That's why it's so important that we need each other. Uh, because great damage has been done by sincere Christians, even when they got a handle on this verse and what it really meant. And uh, so let's remember that. And that's why, you know, again, these these. This, this is, there's eight Beatitudes, and we're on number seven. Next week, we'll do number eight, the final one. Uh, but remember, this, this, is, this is building. There's seven here, and Jesus begins with, this is the nature of his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he says, we begin, all of us, with humility, with a sense of brokenness. And then he, he says, blessed are those who mourn. And again, we embrace our vulnerability, our, our weaknesses, our humanity, and embrace reality and our limits. And then Jesus, blessed are the meek, and now it begins to work out to other people that we, we're a people that, as we're dealing with relationships, we wait on God like Moses. We wait on God. We don't push people. We don't shove people in our plans. God's in charge of reality. We're not. And so we're a people who have chosen the path of meekness. And remember that word blessed is, this is a path. This is the narrow road to life. There's a wide road. It's the way of happiness, but it's a road and it's a choice that we make to live. Then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we're a people that our, our choices are about God, to hunger and thirst for him. And then the, the uh, fifth beatitude is, blessed are the merciful, kind and forgiving. It's the first one that goes outward as well, and that uh, as I'm receiving God's mercy and kindness, I'm now giving it out to other people, and mercy is uh, coming out of me. And then we talked about being pure of heart, which was choosing God's will. We're a people that choose God. Now, out of that, and this is why the seventh beatitude is so important, because this is a truly an active one, a, a major active beatitude. But it's got to flow out of these previous six, or else you, like St. Bernard of Clairvaux, you will kill people, and you will damage people, and you'll, there'll be bodies lying all over as you're out there in the name of Jesus doing true peacemaking. And because uh, peacemaking fundamentally is a work of love. Yes, it is violent. Yes, it is disruptive. Yes, you do occasionally make a few enemies like Christ, but it is a work of love, and, uh, and out of the heart of love and mercy, I now disrupt other people. But please don't go around disrupting your family, your friendships, your workplace, your neighborhood, uh, even politically, unless that mercy and heart of love and mercy is flowing out of you, or else you know what? You are dangerous. Okay? So, this lover's thing. Now, go to Luke 19, and I want to show Jesus disrupting a lot of people's lives in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
And this is the time the Jews are celebrating Passover. We have a lot of Jewish believers here. You know how important that, that is, really the height of their celebration every year. Jerusalem, at this time, has gone from 40,000 to 1.5 million people. And here is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the king. And they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, you know, and, and uh, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Jews are thinking, here's freedom, here's the Messiah. They're going wild. They're looking for political, earthly liberation and freedom from the Romans. And when they say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, uh, what they're saying is, oh, Lord, down with these Romans. Down with these Romans. Kill them. We're sick of these Romans. And the people are excited because Jesus is here or the Messiah is here. They're not looking for a Lamb of God who's going to die for the sins of the world. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to bring war and then bring peace, of course, to follow. But they're excited about the war peace. And here comes Jesus. And he gets there, and in verse 41, he approaches Jerusalem, and he sees the city. He realizes where the crowd's at. He realizes where his disciples are at. And it says in verse 41, he weeps over it. Underline that word, weeps. Because that's the lover part. Because if there's not a love again flowing, please don't go out disrupting too much. And then he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Because they don't see it. They're living in a false peace. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone to another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And he says, he's saying, there's going to be consequences here. And he sees you're going to reap what you're sown here. And then he enters the temple area, verse 45, and it begins to drive out those who were selling. And it says, it's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so here's Jesus, verse 41. Again, as a lover, he weeps. And that word in Greek, it's a very unique word for weeping. And it's the word for wailing. It's the word literally, quote, for bursting into, into sobbing. So this is very different than a little like, you know, a little tear there, you know? This is a, a wailing of, of, of sadness that they're wasting their lives. They're missing God's moment of coming. They're proclaiming him the king and he's crying. They want a military disaster. He realizes the path that people are on is a disaster. Do you know people like that? You realize the path they are on is a disaster for them. And you're like, oh, you want to just shake them and say, hey, and uh, Christ weeps. And uh, he's, he's angry. He's disgusted. Now, understand, everybody's on edge. You've got the Romans would station at least, they say, 30,000 troops in the city because now you've got this, this population that has swelled with 1.5 million people. Imagine a, a city that only had 40,000 normally. And the, the, the Jews had a, had a group of folks called the Zealots, and they were just waiting for, for a military victory. These people were, were already fighting a, a war. And... Uh, uh, you can imagine when Jesus starts cleansing the temple, they're like excited, like, yeah, yeah, let's go all the way, kill everybody, you know? And, and uh, Christ goes to the outer court. The temple has three parts to it. And the outer court is the big part where people would go there to get access to the living God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And merchants had set up shops there or booths, kind of like, a, think of a carnival booths, where they would sell sheep and goats and, and wine and grain so people could buy that and make their sacrifices to God. Now, they had to rent space to get those booths, and, and they were known to charge 
10 times the normal value. You want a sheep? Well, a sheep usually costs two bucks. We're going to charge you 20 because we're in a temple now. So they were known to charge exorbitant prices. Oh, yeah, where are you from? Because most of the visitors were from outside of, of uh, Palestine. They came from around the empire, these Jews. So they didn't have the right currency. Well, you got to exchange a currency. They'd add a 25% rate on that. So you got to, you know, bucket your currency. We're going to charge you 10 bucks for that. So we're just ripping everybody off. They're making a lot of money. But here's these people. They're coming into this temple gate. They're just looking for God. They're sincere. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're looking for God. And all they're getting is rules, regulations, and walls put up in front of them that they can't get to God. And Jesus is angry. He is angry. Very angry. And as one scholar writes about this passage when Jesus overturns the tables, this was a massive court with hundreds and hundreds of boots that it would take, humanly speaking, an army to overthrow the tables. But it shows you the force of Jesus when it does get unleashed is like the equivalent of an army. And tables are flying. And in John, it says he has a whip, a cord, a whip, you know, which, he, which he's using. But his anger to disrupt is flowing out of a deep heart of love and compassion. And it's very important that we pause and remember that, that uh, disruption of peace requires love. Now, think with me for a minute of this word dehumanizing and demonizing people that don't agree with us. It happens all the time. Now, it happens on a large scale in wars. Every war, you'll notice, the newspapers... And the magazines and the rhetoric will talk about the enemy in terms that are inhuman. So, for example, I remember during the Bosnian conflict in the 90s, uh, and the Serbians were doing atrocious things to the Muslims in Bosnia. That I remember reading in one article where, the, where they just said, ah, oh, these, these Muslims are just rabbits. Just dehumanize them as not even people. And so it justified the raping and the pillaging. And in World War II, you know, the Japanese refer to the uh, allies, the Americans, the Australians, and the British as demons. And then we do the same thing to the Japanese. We refer to them as, as monkeys or animals. And, and uh, it goes on. We talk about papers every day, you know, the insurgents, you know, uh, in Iraq, and, and, uh, or the communists, or the commies, or the, the terrorists, or the idiots, and we can go on and on and on. And, and again, uh, politically, all those liberals, all those conservative right-wingers over there, and and whatever your political persuasion will be, it's very easy to dehumanize uh, and demonize people who don't have your point of view. And so it can justify doing all kinds of things in the name of true peace. Uh, I mean, think about racism in our country, you know, and racism and classism and even genders uh, and uh, how we label and dehumanize people very easily. It's just, it just flows off our lips. I mean, it, it happens so easily for those of us. Think of our home and parenting. And, and we were talking, you know, first service, my, my, my kids come home every day, almost every day, and they're angry at somebody. And, you know, they're, and you know, I think one of my daughter's science teacher seems to lack some social graces. And my daughter has had a number of run-ins. And so as she's coming and spewing over me, you know, part of me is like, yeah, you know what? You're right. He's, you know, and, and, and you know, I don't know him. And we just kind of like, shh. And it's a tremendous temptation to dehumanize. Or then, or then the New York educational system. Or, you know, someone was here as a police officer, first service, talking about how some of the situations he's been as a cop. Like, you're not a person. Just, you know, I gave a ticket. Rah! You know, and, you know, who you are in that uniform. And, and how by our words and our comments and our sarcasm, and we withdraw ourselves and our glances. But every day we have opportunities in our personal lives with our friends and families 
to choose to dehumanize and demonize people or not, and to truly peacemake or join with the world. Say, yeah, you know what? He is a... And the love goes out the window in the name of true peace, of course, for the kingdom of God. And it's very easy to fall into that when you've got truth. That's what makes it so dangerous. All right, let me go on here. The second aspect of this true peacemaker is disrupting false peace. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a piece of us that's got to be wise men and women or a wisdom piece. And Jesus exemplifies that because he's able, he's able to, to say no and, and cleanse the temple and disrupt everything, but he's got a right timing for it. I mean, he didn't, he didn't like get a whip out and, and clean the temple out every day. He did at least once, maybe twice, depending on you know, how scholars see it. But uh, when I talk about wisdom, I'm referring to as we approach these situations and try to bring true peace, it's very complicated. It, these require discernment, depth of understanding, a long-range perspective, not short-range. And whether it's your family, your spouse, your children, your friends, your neighbors, workplace, politics, it takes, it takes enormous prudence to know how do I disrupt this peace in an appropriate way at the appropriate time. And if you just go in there with guns blazing in the name now of love, without wisdom, you're dangerous. And, and you know, it says in Proverbs 14, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. It's a great verse, Proverbs 14, 18. I've memorized it. It hasn't helped me live it that well, but I memorized it anyway. Proverbs 14, 8. And haste, however, leads to poverty. And so again, if I'm angry at somebody and I know they've done something wrong to me and I've got to go to them, I know I've got to do some inner work first. I've got to get wisdom on timing of when to go. I just don't go in because the Bible says to go in there. It's like when you, when you hear about a conflict between two people and you, I hear Joe's side, all right, great, great. Well, wisdom is I don't go in and blast Nancy because, again, Proverbs 18 says, uh, the first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. And so I just, I, I, I have the wisdom to know I've heard part of the story, but there's probably a lot more to this. And let me wait on the Lord. Again, meekness, brokenness, humility, all the other beatitudes before I go in there blazing and start overturning tables in the name of Jesus. It's given Jesus a bad name. So just step back with me, and I, and I wish I had time to go into this in, in greater detail. Not that I'm an expert, but we need to touch on the issue of even national and international affairs. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus, where he says, you are marked, unlike everybody else in the world, as being peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you will be called sons of God. That, that's, that's a mark of who you are. And for the last 2,000 years, believers have been applying this verse to the issue of war. And um, so I would like to take a stab at it right now because I think it's, I think it's important that we talk about it because you can't look at this verse without looking at the issue of war. Now, I'm not a pacifist, um, and some of you in this room are, and I respect that. In fact, the pacifist never war has been part of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years, and I, I think it's, a, it's a rightfully so. But this new day that we're in of terrorism has even challenged the most faithful pacifist Christians in our midst. And one of the most famous evangelical pacifists is a man named Jim Wallace. He edits an excellent magazine called Sojourners. Now, again, I think it's excellent because it's a very different point of view. But he's gone to jail 20 times in the last 30 years. 
but he wrote a piece on, on how he struggled with being a peacemaker and a pacifist in this age of terrorism, because it's a whole new day here. And, and just, you know, a lot of these books and articles have quoted people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pacifist, who ended up in World War II, uh, became part of, part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, because he said this, this, the, this was the best option at this point. Even Gandhi, who was a pacifist, nonviolent, said, if there's a lunatic in the village, first you tie up the lunatic, and then you deal with the lunacy. And here's what Jim Wallace wrote about uh, our present situation as Christians and how we respond. Uh, I, I guess it was the introduction to his response, but I thought it was very helpful. He goes, it's about bin Laden and the whole group of terrorists. He goes, they have no interest, bin Laden, these folks, in global justice, which is our concern, always global justice, and peace that many of us have lived and fought for. In fact, they are its enemies. Their vision for the world is absolutely oppressive. And they would destroy democracy, deny human rights, repress women, and persecute people of other faiths and even their own religion who disagree with them. Even worse, they blaspheme the name of God by doing their violent work in the name of religion. To dismiss them as merely Islamic fundamentalists or marginal extremists, it's not for me. I know it's not for me. <laughs> to deny them as Islamic fundamentalists or marginal extremists is not enough. These terrorists are educated, well-financed, and coldly calculating, and they will quickly and massively kill whenever it suits their purpose, which is taking over Islam and the entire Muslim world. We must be realistic, we must be realistic at this moment and confront the fact that terrorists are now planning further violence against innocent people, as massive a scale as their weapons and capacity will allow. And they are a people who are not bound by conscience or limits on the destruction that they are seeking to make. At that point, then he gives a whole bunch of stuff that he advocates, and, and he by no means is in favor of the Iraq war. I don't know what your position of the Iraq war is, but the key thing, I think, for us is whether you are for or against it, it is a great tragedy, that war. And every time you read in the paper about someone getting killed on either side, it is a tragedy. I don't know how we're going to ever exit that place, but it needs to grieve. Anytime we read of a war and human beings being killed, it needs to grieve us because the kingdom of God is about peace, not war. And I'm not an, econ I'm not a, um, uh, an expert on international affairs about just war theory. I don't have the wisdom on that. And I recommend actually a book for those of you who are involved in that level uh, called Just Peacemaking, 10 Practices for Abolishing War by Glenn Stassen. He's a, he's a fuller professor. He's written probably the best work on Christian peacemaking against war and how we deal with that issue, especially in today's world. Again, God's leading each of us differently in how to engage in national, international affairs. And I commend you, we should be involved as God leads us. And I, I don't have a policy for us as a church at all. But I do know this, we are to pray for peace, and we are to believe God for peace. We are not a people about war and killing and dehumanizing any human being made in God's image. And uh, so we all engage and pray. So that's the wisdom on that scale. But we even need wisdom about, as parents, <coughs> they say by the time the average child finishes elementary school, they watch two to four hours of television a day, which means they witnessed over 8,000 murders and 100,000 other acts of violence. So that means part of being a peacemaker as parents is that we actually manage the television set with our kids. It's not a free-for-all with violence. And because we know it desensitizes kids as they grow up 
as they observe it. We teach, as part of our discipleship and emotional health, we teach conflict resolution skills in families, in relationships. Why? That's part of peacemaking. Very few people in the culture know how to handle conflict on any level. Part of what we do is we offer that kind of discipleship to ourselves as well as the wider culture. The issue of strengthening communities, many studies have been done on this, but one of the most important issues for reducing violence in communities, especially in urban settings, is strengthening that community. Organizations and churches have the ability to actually enable a community to become cohesive that is broken. When a community is broken, there is much more violence. Why do we have a community development corporation that's doing legal clinics and medical clinics and after school programs and English as a second language? Why? Because we are committed to true peacemaking. We're trying to help build a New York City sense of community when there is none. A sense of cohesion that it's, we, we increase the value and joy of living in a, in a place like Queens when everybody wants to run out of here. And it's really, it's a part of true peacemaking that we're involved in as a church for the long term as we are planted now in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. So uh, may we listen to people around us and be better peacemakers as a whole church. All right, I'm getting carried away. Number three is true peacemakers disrupt false peace, not just as lovers, not just as wise men and women. You've got to have the guts to be a warrior. And that really was our theme all last week because for many of us, that is our struggle. We don't have the courage or the strength to finally speak up and say what is true is true and stop living a pretender and illusion. Now, this requires energy, alertness, decisiveness, courage, perseverance, uh, awareness, and initiation. I mean, this being a warrior is a long way from being a wimp. Jesus, I want you to go back, go to this, go back to this passage in Luke 19. I mean, he goes into this temple. He is a warrior. <coughs> I mean, he just cleans the place out. Now, I want you to note that he doesn't go to the Capitol building in Jerusalem. He doesn't go to City Hall. He doesn't go to the most powerful, richest people on earth. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem. It's like if Jesus came to New York City, what's the first place he'd come as a warrior and clean house? New Life Fellowship. I'm getting out of here. Let's all find another church. But really, what this text is teaching us is he's not going to the United Nations first. He is not going to the Empire State Building. He's not going to City Hall to meet with Mayor Bloomberg. He's not even going to Queen Center Mall to shop. Okay? He is coming to the temple of the living God. And the temple of the living God is his people. And we gather together on Sabbaths like this to worship him and hear from him. But the crucial place in every city is the place of worship. That's the crucial place because Jesus knows that if there's not true worship of the living God where people are, are getting set free from their lies and their own falsehoods within themselves and becoming true to who they are, if they're not experiencing and meeting the living God, there's not a hope for that city to experience true kingdom peace. So he comes in as a warrior into the temple. At that time, it was a literal temple. We're now the temple. And it's interesting, he doesn't attack the Roman soldiers. He doesn't attack, you know, the bandits on the road to Jerusalem. He doesn't deal with the poverty issue and the slavery issue and the socioeconomic injustices, although they're part of it. Nor does he even go after slavery, which is going on at that time, although he does in other 
underlying ways in his ministry. But he attacks the temple. And again, the temple was divided into three parts. You had an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And um, you gotta, we have to ask ourselves this question, what angers Jesus most at this moment about his people? He's going to walk in here. Good question, isn't it? I read an interesting study recently, and they said this, that the gro- a growing number of people are leaving the institutional church for a new reason. They are leaving not because they have lost their faith. They are leaving to preserve their faith. That's interesting. They're leaving to preserve their faith. People come to church to meet God. Don't, I mean, I, mean I, I walked in the first time. I was pretty, I was, I was a mess. I was desperate. This was like my last, my last hurrah. And you're saying, I can hopefully expect to meet God here. Hopefully I can get to him here. And I, you come fearfully, but you come with some expectation, some hope that like maybe God's here through these people. I'll get to him. The sad thing is, most people come into churches, and we're one of them, and there's booths set up. There's tables set up, just like in the, in the outer court. And we have a Baptist table. We got a Presbyterian table. We got a Catholic table. We got an Episcopal table. We got a non-denominational table. We got a New Life table over here, you know? <laughs> Hopefully, it's a small one. And we got an interdenominational booth. You know, we got them all, a Pentecostal one, but, you know, kind of like these booths were set up to hopefully provide a service initially. Every denomination, every church is initially providing a service. What happens over time, however, is they actually become a place where they, they, they can be keeping people from getting access to the living God. That's why Jesus explodes and says, he throws the tables out. He goes, no, my house will be a house of prayer. You have, you've made it a den of thieves. You're, this is about your ego. This is about you, not God. And he goes, this has got to go. People are supposed to be meeting the living God, and you're supposed to be lifting up prayers for people to be a blessing to people. This is not about you. And I do think that, you know what, I mean, I, let's, let's face it. Um, we've had many a meeting at New Life and, and invited Jesus to come when it was over, you know? And uh, it's very easy to, for folks to come in and we say, you know what, we have selective love and selective grace, or we write certain people off, or we quit on people, and and we shame people, and you know, and, and but grace is free, and love is, is free. And listen, I, 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 the problem is, I mean, we can find a church with no tables that need to be thrown over if we could only get rid of all of us. But as long as we're here, we've got to be inviting Jesus to come in as a warrior and kick over tables. Because even in my best intentions, I end up setting a few tables up too and say, dish out your money. Then you can come to the membership meeting tonight. You know? <laughs> and we get crazy. And... We love, see, Jesus loves the church. He, he loves his temple. You can't come and, and throw over tables if you don't love her. Remember when, G, when Paul was persecuting Christians and Jesus appeared to him in Acts 9? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the point is, Jesus was, Paul was persecuting the people because the people are, are, are Jesus is in us, in the people. And, and as you grow closer to God and closer to Jesus, your love for his people is growing. If your love for his people is lessening, my sound going? Keep going. If your if your love for his people is lessening, then you're not getting closer to him. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, there is a war that goes on even inside the church. And we're to engage in that. I am and so are you out of love for her. But we do it as lovers and as wise men and women. But uh, we're, we're doing it because we want people to experience God. We want our church to be a light and a blessing to people. We don't want to get in the way. The truth is we're sinners and we mess it up all the time. And so may God have grace on us, you know. And, but remember this, at the end of this passage, which I did not read in verse 47, after Jesus is a peacemaker, disrupting the false peace, he's a lover, he's wise, he's a warrior. And then it says in verse 47, the leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they decide we have to kill this guy. And that's next week. We've got to kill him because there is a price to being a person who disrupts false peace. Make no mistake about it. Don's story was a good one. Verse 10 tells us that's not the way it goes for most of us. Thank God it does sometimes. And uh, this is heavy. This is a heavy invitation and a large one for us as we think about applying it in all the areas of our life, personally, family, work, neighborhood, even globally. So, you're probably sitting there, as I was thinking, you're saying to yourself, hey, Pete, I am just trying to survive. I got enough problems with engaging other people and disrupting their false peace and getting attacked back. I don't need it. I'm just trying to keep my head above water. So, I want to close with this. We can't do this unless we engage in the previous Beatitudes, especially the ones about blessed are the pure in heart and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God's peace has got to be flooding into you so you can give it out to other people. Listen, if my child comes home about that science teacher and she is angry and mad, but I've had a bad day myself, I'm frantic, and she starts complaining about him, I start complaining about him right back. I'll throw a few murders and darts and guns. Yeah, you're right. Because nothing's flowing out of me either. Because the true peace is not in me either. So what needs to happen here is, I'm going to give you a quote here by Thomas Burton, which I think captures the issue very well. We have to stop doing violence to our own souls first so that God's peace can fill us. Then we can give it out to other people. But you can't give out peace that you don't have. So here's, what, here's the, here's the uh, peacemaking comes to ourselves first. And, and here's the quote. There's a form of contemporary violence to which we most easily succumb. Activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most modern form, of innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activity destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the roots of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So we go to be alone, and we go, in a sense, to solitude and silence with God, to the desert, I like to call it. We go to the desert, not to escape people, but to find people. 
You see, if you're always with people and always busy, your soul doesn't have room to breathe. And so what happens in every day at work, at home, people are complaining to us, aren't they? They're always complaining about something and somebody. We just join right in. Yeah, you're right. We, we murder, kill, shoot, nuclear bomb over here. We're just... The, 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 the inner peace of Jesus is not coming out of us because we are so rushed and so pressured that there's no room in our souls for God. And we wonder, why aren't we the best peacemakers on earth? Why aren't we like leading the charge? I believe part of it goes back to the fact that our lives are way too busy. I look at myself, I am the worst peacemaker when I am overactive. When I'm talking about my activity is way too much in comparison to my time alone with God. And what you need is different than me. But I need a lot of silence, rest, and quiet. I miss a Sabbath, that one day of real rest, delight, and God. And I'm, a, I'm a bear. I just keep going. I, I start, my spirit just can't take because God didn't build you to go, 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 go. That's why next Saturday, I think next Saturday is this day alone with God. I hope many of you are going to St. Ignatius for three, four hours of silence. It's a great thing. Just go be quiet. Sign up for that retreat. Go. Because you have no space in your life to just be quiet. I'm telling you, you get filled with God, and then as you're out there and you want it, then it's time to disrupt the peace, something's coming out of you. And the beauty is, it's not a dagger. Those of you who are parents, like myself with four kids, man, there's so much coming at us. Every moment of the day, it's so difficult to be a peacemaker. It's impossible without having been filled with God first. But at least when I've been filled with God, I've got something to draw upon, and it's his life flowing out of me. So let me ask you, as people come to you and complain and murder others with their sarcasm and their glances and their withdrawing and their comments, do you agree and just false peacemake with them? Or able to pull back? Because what makes us distinct is this. So let me invite the worship team forward. I, and I just, I invite you to ponder this in your life and where you are in your own soul. So here's three applications for you, okay, as we close. The first is, are you a wimp? I don't know how the Spanish are translating that in the back in the booth there, uh, what the word is for wimp. But uh, what's the Spanish translation for wimp? Wimpy, very good. <laughs> Wimp, wimp o. And so your challenge, as many of you came to me after last week's sermon, is to speak up and assert yourself because your tendency is to be a doormat. Others of you, you know what? You have enough anger in you and bitterness to take off the heads of not just one or two people, but a lot of innocent bystanders. And right now you say, oh God, have mercy on my soul. Because there's not love coming out of me. There is rage. And you've only given me, Lord, another tool and give me the truth of Scripture. Now I can really go after him. And, uh, and the third one is basically, I, it's probably for all of us, how many of us here are rushing and have no inner peace with Jesus? He says, peace I give with you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but my peace I give. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Let's all stand together.